Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by a new interlocutor, by writer and filmmaker and art critic and many other cultural things besides Noah Millman. Noah is somebody I've read over the years, but I've never talked to before. I was compelled, however, to reach out and say, hello, let's talk about your new essay. Let's talk about Kazuo Ishiguro. Let's talk about our new technology that is either making us more poetic or more anti-poetic in in some strange way, maybe even inhuman, and how that comes out in these novels and, of course, in the movies that came out of them. Kazuo Ishiguro is not just a Nobel-winning novelist. He is also one of the novelists adapted to cinema. The Remains of the Day in 93 was a very big success. In 2010, Never Let Me Go was also a success. And now his new 2021 novel has already been optioned. And so far as I can tell, they are in pre. They're going to start shooting the movie later this year. So the interest in his visions is not lacking. But before I read your essays, I did not read something on him that struck me as revealing through every dimension, not just our concern with cinema or poetry more broadly in the novel, but reflections on modernity, on our humanity, on democracy, and on what we look to find out in novels, whether we really are ever in love with anybody, whether our delusions of grandeur or of eternity have any seriousness, have anything to put our faith in. So all of these things were on my mind reading your essay in Modern Age, And I'm proud to tell our listeners that my name was beside yours, which is a a compliment in a way, in the magazine. I'm a fan and a writer for Modern Age. So just go read that essay. We will link it to our podcast here. Before we get to talking about the essay and the movies and the novels and Ishiguro, please, Noah, introduce yourself for our audience. My name is Noah Millman, and I've been writing in some form or another in an expository fashion for the last 20 years, first as a post-9-11 trauma blogger, and then for the American scene, then for the American conservative, which I left in 2017. I now am a columnist for the week, and I'm the, I write on mostly film and theater for modern age. In this case, I wrote about Ishiguro's novels, and I'm also a filmmaker been a producer or executive producer on a handful of features, most notably Infinitely Polar Bear, came out in 2015, currently trying to get my first feature that I would direct off the ground after doing a couple of shorts. And all of this is my second life. I had a whole previous career on Wall Street, which I hopefully we won't talk about. And I'm honored to be here. That's very kind of you to say, Noah. Let's talk about how you discovered the Shiguro. But first, let me briefly outline the plot of the three novels you wrote about for Modern Age and which we will be talking about today. First, The Remains of the Day, the novel that made Ishiguro famous, came out in 1989, and it is set in the 30s and 50s in Britain, narrated by a protagonist, the butler Stevens, of Lord Darlington, an aristocrat who becomes a Nazi appeaser. This was made into a famous movie in 1993, eight Oscar nominations, it starred Anthony Hopkins as Stevens, but the movie can't do very much beyond showing you that this is a portrait of a repressed man. The novel suggests something different, that his idea of dignity, of serving somebody worthwhile, of being part of a cause that is at the same time a human being, an aristocrat, is damn right ideal. This fails, of course, but in the novel at least you see the plausibility and therefore the nobility of service, which is in one sense derivative, but in another sense it's not. The servant isn't just deriving 
dignity from his master. He protects the master's dignity too. He has something positive to contribute, in fact. Still, the novel reveals that this social arrangement of the aristocracy collapsed in World War II and, of course, should not even be an object of nostalgia, as you put in your essay. In leaving the ugly side of life to servants, the aristocrats were clueless themselves as to what politics for Britain or Europe or the world might mean. Next, Never Let Me Go, this was published in 2005, but it is set in 1990 and looks back in 1978. This is the same technique as in The Remains of the Day, two different eras are portrayed, with the suggestion that something in between shifted, although in this case it is nothing so transformational as a world war and an entire regime change, like the disappearance of the aristocracy. But also this is a different genre, it's science fiction. Ishiguro is writing an alternative past, but one where there are remarkable technological powers that allow for cloning, primarily for medical purposes. The clones, in fact, are not considered human, but only living organ donors, until, of course, the donations kill them. It is not just that the clones are servants, but it is a specific servant, the protagonist of the novel, who cares for other clones who are also donating their organs, trying to keep them alive and cheered up as much as possible during the process, which may or may not be humane. The difference is that this time around, it's the past that's hopeful. In the past, when these clones were kids in school, they were artistic and they hoped that something might come of their lives, that they might be acknowledged as human in some way. The novel looks at art primarily, the creativity of these kids, but also, of course, at love, which is in some sense expressed in caring for other clones because they are isolated from society. Otherwise, they cannot be involved with human beings in meaningful political or social relationships. The past was a kind of promise for humanity, and it seems to have been wiped out by the desperate desire to avoid death, and therefore the need to turn people into organ donors. Whereas it was the elegance of the aristocracy that required a class of servants, in this case it's the desperate fear of death that does it. So this is decidedly a more modern turn, and therefore deserves to be a kind of science fiction. But of course, in as much as it deals with our times, so to speak, the 90s, let's say, it's also the past, it was the past at the time of publication in 2005, and it suggests that maybe some of this has come true, that maybe we don't recognize ourselves in this and call it sci-fi because we don't want it, like the absent masters, so to speak, in the novel. The novel is told from the perspective of the carer. Again, a servant is the protagonist and expresses her humanity as best as the novel allows. This too was made into a well-received movie in 2010 by Mark Romanek after a script by Alex Garland, who went on to write his own science fiction movies and direct them. And it starred Carrie Mulligan, Andrew Garfield, and Kira Knightley as the three young clones who fall in love and try to become artistic and then have to face this catastrophic new humanity, or inhumanity rather. Finally, Clara and the Sun, which has come out this year, and it has already been optioned and the writer has been hired to write the script, this too will become a movie. This too is a story about technology and a science fiction account of humanity. This too is narrated by a protagonist who is a servant by design, but the surprise is that this time the servant is an artificial intelligence, an artificial friend who has to help a young girl who might be dying, or perhaps replace her. Both are possibilities, because the future is much stranger still in this novel. 
it's not merely a matter of a separation between masters and clones or between masters and servants in an aristocracy. The separation is everywhere, even among the rich, or especially among the rich, between parents, between parents and children. What makes us social beings, our need for one another, our longing to complete each other, or for completion from each other, has largely been wiped out. Perhaps we could say that this is marked by an absence of the erotic, just like Never Let Me Go was marked by a hypertrophy of the erotic. That might have been the only hope for salvation, true love. So in Clara and the Sun, it's left to an artificial machine program to be emotionally intelligent, to pick up cues, to notice how people behave, how people behave to each other, to notice especially what people don't notice anymore and why therefore they are unable to deal with each other well. So altogether, the story seemed to be not merely about servants, but the outsourcing of humanity to servants from a master class that might be mankind or it might be the rich, but is increasingly driven, it would seem, by technology and by a kind of democracy, since there's no longer obligation or an explicit hierarchy, but which is also profoundly anti-democratic, since it takes some people, most obviously the clones in Never Let Me Go, and turns them into mere objects or mere organs. So with the plot. Now, Noah, please tell me, where did you discover Ishiguro? How come you have turned to this novelist? I've loved Ishiguro's writing. I met his work for the first time when I was in college and uh, really fell in love with it with uh, Consoled, which is not one of the books that I talked about in the essay, but I'm a huge fan of him. I think he is an important novelist and there aren't too many of those out there. Yeah, Ishiguro was born in Japan, but as a boy, his family took him to Britain and he grew up there. It's not easy to say to what extent he feels he's just part of the great Western march of democracy and technology and all this, to what extent he looks at things from outside. It seems like it is, like he is doing both, since he likes to put his stories in the mouths of protagonists who narrate an experience that they are, to some extent, marginal to. I suppose it is not unusual in modern literature to prefer sidekicks or side characters to the main heroes that we were used to for thousands of years before in tragedies or epics and uh, so forth. But in his case, he, he wishes through such a marginal character, as in the case of his latest novel, an artificial companion, an artificial friend, Clara, to reveal what a society is like and why that society cannot look at itself in the way that such a character can. Of course, it's in some sense typical of the ambitions of artists to look at the society as a whole and therefore to look at it from outside. From inside, it is much more difficult to get anything but a partial perspective. But of course, it's also a question whether if you look at it from outside, you can see it as the people inside see it anymore. To achieve both things, as it were, to do justice to our desire to know and to do justice to the people you're talking about, the society you're describing at the same time, is very difficult. And few people attempt it before. Ishiguro is to be commended. One assumes that the fame he has achieved after his Nobel Award is some evidence that people realize he's trying to do something very difficult to give an account of what's happening to us and why we are, above everything else, sort of confused with ourselves and our situation. Yeah, I think what I appreciate most about Ishiguro is that it's a weakness in a novel when it's very easy to establish what the perspective of the author is. You can still make great work, but I think it is still a weakness. 
And his perspective is elusive. I think you're right that he stands outside to some degree. I certainly think he considers himself British, but I think he is to some degree outsider to, to anything, to any society, even though Britain is his home. His latest novel, by the way, it doesn't ever say where it's set. I think it's set in America. It certainly feels like it's set in America. But Never Let Me Go and, and Remains of the Dead were completely set in Britain. Uh, Artist of the Floating World was set in Japan, as was Pale View of Hills. The novel before Clara, Barry Giant, is set in post-Arthurian Britain, or just post-Arthurian Britain. He wrote a novel that was set in Shanghai in the 30s. And The Unconsoled, that I fell in love with, is set in Central Europe. But he does, as you say, as moderns tend to sort of look at his worlds from, to some degree, the outside. I don't know that I would agree that the kinds of outsiders he picks are necessarily not, not central. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that it feels to me is driven home by, by these three novels in particular, by Remains of the Day, by Never Let Me Go, and by Clara and the Sun, we think that the actors in history, the protagonists in the story are you know, in, in the remains of the day, you would think it is the aristocrat who is trying to reconcile Britain with Germany in advance of World War II. In Never Let Me Go, I suppose you might think it would be the biotechnologists who have developed the ability to do cloning and thereby extend human lifespan. Uh, in Clara and the Sun, you would imagine that it is the owner of the artificial friend who is the protagonist. But uh, he's not just using these characters as observer characters to see what the real protagonist is doing. In fact, they're the real protagonist because what they're engaged with is the real work on an emotional level of living in these societies. And that I think is what ties them together. And that's the angle through which I'm reading the books. Yeah, I think that's partly a modern concern, not like having people above us. Uh, we are distrustful of hierarchy. And to a considerable extent, these stories further this moral view that hierarchies are essentially suspicious. We're right to suspect them. But there is something else to what you say that strikes me as fundamental to all politics. After all, if there is some kind of ruling arrangement, it will be ultimately for the sake of the ruled, or else it can't really work. That's an interesting idea, that the, uh, and that's actually a very modern idea, that ruling is for the sake of the rule. I wonder whether Homer would agree. At the end of the day, I don't think Ishiguro is writing a, uh, a political tract, even though I'm, you know, coming at it with certain ideas in mind. And so that's why what I said is the, from an emotional perspective, the, 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 the characters who are really doing the work of, of living in these societies are these side characters, and that, that that's in different ways what's been outsourced to them by the protagonist. I don't think anyone would say that Stevens in the remains of the day is the one really shaping history in the way that his master, in the way that his, uh, the aristocrat who, who employed him as a butler was doing. But that's not the only way to understand what's going on in this society is, is who's you know, making decisions that shape world affairs. Yeah, and all of these stories are about how world affairs are shaping, how the entire society is being shaped. And in the case of the latter, Never Let Me Go and Clara, technology seems to be doing the shaping, not so much human decisions. There is not an aristocrat or a government in charge. In fact, humans in some sense don't seem to be in charge, which further suggests that maybe it is better to start looking at it from the point of view of ordinary people or workers rather than from the people who are on top and who, so to speak, say what should be done. But there's always this question, for the sake of who? In the remains of the day, 
there's a, a desperate attempt to keep world peace, to prevent World War II by happening through a fantasy of rapprochement, appeasement, as it's less pleasantly known. But that those are mere speeches. And in this other world where the servants live, there, there is work, as you say. It seems like the view from the top is often deluded for that reason. People put way too much prize on speeches. And then for that reason, they tend to ignore the work that is needed. And therefore, as you say, the living in some sense is work. We have to live our lives. We can't simply live in abstractions or in fantasies that come out in speech. It's something for a novelist who, after all, is in the business of making images through his speeches to take the side of the workers over the speakers, to take the side of ordinary people over people who are exalted as though their speeches matter. Right? What they say goes, as we say. But Shiguro suggests that that's not so, that people up top in some sense have deluded themselves that they're in control. Events will pass them by, and in a way, politics will pass into technology, and then everybody will be stuck with an arrangement where it's simply not possible anymore for what somebody says to go. I think that's a thread that goes through all three books, actually. Uh, I agree with you that technology is not a particularly important point in the first book that becomes much more important in the later two books. But there's a sense that Stevens's Lord thinks that he is an actor on the stage and that by engaging in the relationships that he has, by saying the right words and, and, and so forth, he can change the course of history. And he's wrong about that. And it, and it feels on the surface like that book is therefore a critique of a particular social order of hierarchy. And so particularly given that Stevens on the surface appears not to have lived much of a life, he has foregone any kind of romance. Uh, he has no family. It's notable, I think, that in all three books, the protagonists are, well, Stevens is not biologically sterile, but he has chosen a path in life that offers no prospect, really, of having a family. The clones in Never Let Me Go are bred to be sterile. It's impossible for them to have a family. And Clara, of course, is not even is a machine built for a particular purpose, albeit one that for which she is endowed with subjectivity, with intelligence. So turning to Stevens and to the remains of the dead, it appears that it's a critique of hierarchy, but the present tense of the book takes place in sort of the new democratic world that is a borning, where America is the dominant power, where Britain has embraced socialism. And you can already see Ishiguro is not as simple as saying, like, the moral of my story is the Nazis were bad and the aristocrats were bad because they didn't understand. The moral of the story is much more elusive. I'm not even sure there is what one would call a moral of the story. But there are intimations that the new order isn't going to be nearly as unhierarchical as we imagine, and that the people who are going to wind up in charge are also going to be more than a little dismissive of the capacities of the very people that they've elevated. And Stevens is going to figure out at the very end, what is he going to do with the remains of the day? He's going to figure out how to be a better butler to the sort of person who's now going to be in charge, who prizes kind of casualness, who prizes, uh, is, is a wealthy American who has bought the estate that his Lord works at. Stevens is going to put aside his nostalgia for the world that he was previously in and adapt to the new world, but he's going to be a servant. He's going to be a butler in that new world. That's really ultimately his identity. And in as much as we feel something for him, I think it's more complicated than simply feeling sorry for him or feeling like he's wasted his life. I think we've gone through a complicated journey. I wanted to say one other thing. I mentioned that the two of his films have been made in, two of his books have been made into films. 
and um, the new one is, I didn't realize it was already in production. I knew it would have been an option. It was going to be filmed soon, but good to know they're moving along and the film industry is alive and well. I think there's something profound that's lost in all of the film translations. And I'm really curious whether the same will be true of Clara and the Sun. Ishiguro wrote all three books, very much a first person limited kind of writing where we are inside consciousness of, I mean, it's not stream of consciousness, it's not that hot. Our view of things is very much limited by the protagonist. And I think something, a great deal is lost when we lose that and when we translate to film. I think both films were successful. I think they were both well-made, but I'm, I find both a bit disappointing after the novels. And I think that's the main reason is that his style is deceptively simple. And so it feels like you could translate it relatively easy because it's not very literary, it's not flowery. But that limited perspective is actually really essential to the effects of the books and to bringing us into the, to seeing these characters as the protagonists. And I think I find myself looking at Anthony Hopkins and looking down on him, condescending to him in a sense, much more than I do in reading the novel when I, when I interact with Stevens. In watching Never Let Me Go, I find myself much more ready to see it as a simple indictment of society, like what a horrible society that would allow this to happen. And I think you lose the sense of, well, there's a kinship. This is a sort of, on one level, a horribly oppressive and dystopian society, but on another hand, sense, there's a kinship, not only with our own society, but with, with all societies that the sort of the class structure, the peculiar class structure of this society has something in common with any class structure, the peculiar existential place of these characters has something in common with the existential place of all mortals and so forth. Yeah, I think you're right on both counts. It's especially useful to contrast the movies with the novels because the movies assume you have a certain interest in protagonists, you wish them well, and you want to see them succeed, even though you are, after all, interested only in their tribulations. You're only there to see their suffering in a certain sense. It's, it's peculiar. Whereas the novels insist not only that these people are servants, that's what they do, that's who they are. And what they do and who they are gradually converge. And nevertheless, everything is said in the first person. There is an insistence that although they are servants, every one of them is an I, speaking for himself, reflecting on himself. A certain capacity to look at one's own concerns, to look at one's own life as belonging to oneself, and yet somehow in need of validation. Some, somehow in need of being told to somebody else will judge it. That's at the core of these novels. And you could say, or oh, even from that, that there is something deeply humanistic about Ishiguro. He wants people to take humanity seriously and to show them that he writes novels. In the novels, all of this stuff is made up and it comes up to a perspective. And you gradually realize that it is somebody's perspective. Somebody is looking at the world in this way. And the more the way the world looks makes sense, the closer you are to that type of person. I think that's exactly right. And humanistic is exactly the right word for him, which is so interesting to me that his most recent iteration chose a non-human being a created robot to be that locus, to be that I. One way to read the first 
two of the books in this that I'm thinking of as a series. They're not obviously intended to be a series. He has not said these are really books I'm making that connection. But in both of them, you could come away and sort of say there's something horrible about aristocracy. There's something horrible about a biotechnological regime that reduces some people to spare parts. It's difficult to get one's dudgeon up with Clara because Clara is literally a machine. And also the way she's constructed, she is genuinely happy to do her job. Her subjectivity herself exists entirely in relation to her function. There's nothing outside it, really. There's no interest that she could possibly have in herself other than in. She is, in a sense, the perfect slave. That's what I think is so fascinating and, and, and ultimately radical about this is his suggestion that by creating that character, a sentient being that is the perfect slave, the people of society have put some essential part of their own humanity to that being and lost touch with it themselves, that even someone who has no interests of their own, right, by virtue of that role, by virtue of being a servant, has somehow embodies something essential about humanity that we would regret losing. And that I think when we look at the other characters in that book, we feel like has been lost. You know, and I compare it in the essay, I talk a little bit about, very briefly about Toy Story as a, as a point of comparison. Toy Story isn't trying to tell a story like this. It's a, it's a com- much more comforting kind of story. And we think of ourselves as the toys, even though the toys have this job, we, we don't really think that much about the humans. That's not an option in Clara. We're very aware of the humans and horrified by them, even though we recognize ourselves in them, even though we recognize that the kinds of striving that they're engaged in, the kinds of choices that they're making are the kinds of choices that we make in our society. Yeah, I think to have something comparably shocking in Toy Story, you'd have to think of the toys as, well, you know, just garden variety American parents. You're just a toy to your kids and eventually they'll throw you away, they'll move on with their lives and you barely ever see them again. Then I believe you will have some of this moral shock. But of course, that is not the ordinary interpretation of that story, to say the least. The beginning of the second movie starts there, right? When he realizes I'm going to be thrown out. But there are parents in the wings. In fact, the parent, the actual parent is the one who's throwing him out. But you're right, there is something universal in this problem. There will always have to be some kind of rule or hierarchy. And it's always a question of whether that can be arranged in such a way that rulers and ruled are not both damaged or irretrievably damaged might be more reasonable, uh, an expectation. In uh, the remains of the day, the aristocrats rely on the servants to perform work without being in the way, without being in the way by being human, without marking their own individuality, obeying as though they have no opinions of their own and therefore no inclination to disobey, since that is the problem with human beings. We all are opinionated, and therefore, as soon as somebody says yay, somebody will say nay. To be opinionated is to, to stir counter opinions just by speaking up. And servants are supposed to solve that problem. Somehow the regime has to be arranged, and that means that some people have to talk and some people have to shut up. But the consequences then matter. Will this get things done so that the people in the community live an ordinarily decent life? Will they be human if they accept certain political limits? If they are bred to those political limits so that they are, don't perceive them as humiliating or diminishing? Aristocracy doesn't cut it for Ishiguro or for the perspective of remains of the day, rather. But it points to, as you suggest, a fundamental problem. 
for the sake of whom is all this being done? And what is everybody sacrificing in the process? That these are requirements of life is, I think, simply to be granted. But do we all, why are we unhappy with our way of life then? After all, if we were not dissatisfied, we would not be turning either to, say, biotechnology or AI, or on the other hand, we would not be turning to literature either if we were not dissatisfied with certain things about our way of life. And so one way or another, this question crops up for the sake of whom is all this stuff being done, including by us? I can't speak to the remains of the day in that perspective, right? Because the social order is sort of a given there. It's not a work of of fantasy or science fiction in the same way. But I wonder whether that's really what Ishiguro is most interested in is sort of for whom is this being done or, you know, why aren't we satisfied? There's a place where sort of, you know, the reactionary mindset and the utopian radical mindset sort of meet in the imagining of is there some order where it will all work. And I don't think Ishiguro is really that kind of person. I don't think he has sort of the promise of democracy on some level is that, no, it's not that one person needs to talk and another person needs to shut up. It's that we all need to take turns and we respect each other enough to take turns and then we will deliberate together and come to conclusions. And whether we're talking about Periclean Athens or a, a town hall in New Hampshire or a massive modern democratic state like the United States or India, this is the same idea that we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna take turns and then we're gonna decide together. And I don't think Ishiguro is an ideologist for or against that idea. He's just looking at the world and at human beings as he sees them. And it's obvious that that's not the way things actually work in actual democracies. We don't simply take turns and and then decide together. It's much more complicated than that. With respect to sort of who it's done for, I think the image of technology that comes out of the latter two books, out of uh, Never Let Me Go and out of Clara and the Sun, is to some degree self-perpetuating, which is to say, you know, when capabilities are achieved, they're going to be exploited. And I think that's an accurate description of human history. So I'm with Ishiguro on that. I can think of societies that have abjured particular technologies. If those technologies turn out to become important in terms of being able to dominate other societies, then those societies go away. And so on some level, that base level of competition is what makes societies continue to adopt new technologies, even if they're not sure what they're going to lead to, whether it's uh, nuclear weapons or, or, or what have you. But in particular technologies talking about here, it's, it's really obvious why they're adopted. Why do does the society never let me go adopt cloning? Because it's going to extend human lifespan. And that is a very basic human desire going all the way back to as long as humans have existed and past that. Animals also try to live you know, forever. I mean, well, it's actually interesting because there are animals who are programmed to die on a psychological level and not just on a physical level. Like physiologically, we all are programmed to die. Our, our cells have a clock in them and they start to break down as the clock comes towards the end. But like the octopus, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, My Octopus Teacher, but one of the extraordinary bits in it is when after the octopus spawns, it destroys itself. And that's a thing octopuses are programmed to do genetically. They tear themselves apart. In fact, they try to die after they've um, propagated. And then there are other examples in the animal kingdom, but, but humans don't do that. We don't have a death drive, that a literal death drive of that kind. We can perversely seek our own destruction. We don't, of course, say like, you know, well, I've achieved that now. The thing I'm dying to do is die. So it's totally normal that this human society, once the capability is there, seeks 
to exploit it. And then the consequence is that there's this alienation that we create this class of people that they have to pretend aren't people. Similarly, in Clara and the Sun, it's less obviously exploitative, like what's wrong with creating an android that can be your artificial friend and that can provide you with a certain degree of emotional support and, and so on and so forth. What's wrong with that? I mean, I doubt that as soon as the capability is there, we, we already have rudimentary versions of this in Japan. I'm sure we'll have them in this country. Very rudimentary. They'll probably get better. What's wrong with that? There's obviously wrong with that. And the desire is also straightforward. You want to have someone who will simply exist for you and provide you with that, those kinds of emotional needs. The question is what kind of person you then become relying on that. You know, I think in terms of, you know, Jefferson, who was a slave owner himself, participated entirely in a slave-owning society, but was very critical of that society. But his main criticism was what it's doing to the character of the masters, that they have slaves. I think of Hegel talking about the sort of the master-slave dynamic and how what the master, when they achieve dominance, then it's in order to achieve recognition for themselves as dominance. But since they dominate slaves, recognition is worthless. And in fact, it's the slave who has the more authentic experience, right? And the only way you know, Hegel, the same sort of promise of democracy, you know, the idea is like, oh, the only way we can get recognition that means anything is by seeing ourselves each other as equals. But it's more difficult than I think Hegel thought to instantiate that in actual social organisms, that notion of equality. It's a difficult ideal that I don't think any society has come close to achieving. Yeah, and in a way, this is why novelists are still in business. We can't help but measure ourselves up to our ideals. This is what I was getting at when I said that we, we can't help but be dissatisfied. But our dissatisfaction does not take a fleshed out form the extent to which the Ichiguro is unusual is that, as you say, he's not exactly progressive. He's not exactly reactionary. He can look at the reactionary world of the aristocracy or the progressive world of biotechnology. That takes sympathy. If you think these people are just evil or they're not even human, you're not going to understand why they do what they do. So right. he's sympathetic with these things, but you're right. He, he doesn't sympathize that much. He doesn't identify with it enough to give you a fleshed out form of what their vision of things is. He gives you instead something like a view of what's wrong with the way things are. Our principle is democratic. It's equality. We're all human beings, after all. But the structures that come out of that principle cannot but contradict it, both in our daily experience and even at the broader level. Our problem is not just that we're not living up to our principles, but we're beginning to suspect they might be the wrong principles or that we are, might be wrong, so to speak, for the principles that we're never going to get this done. People today would be interested in Ishiguro. You know, Ishiguro is primarily a noble novelist, not a dime store novelist. He's for a certain social class, but he tries to make that social class look at the rest of the society. He's trying to tell people up top to look at the people at the bottom as though they were people, which is very hard to do and not pleasant. I push back a little bit on the idea that Ishiguro is writing only for a certain social class. I mean, obviously he's writing only for a literate class, but I don't think he's writing only for a literary class. And I think that's what, one of the things that really distinguishes him is that I think his novels really are very broadly accessible to anyone who likes stories, um, anyone who reads novels. They're not forbidding. They don't require, they're quite subtle and they can be quite complex but you don't have to take them in a complex way. You don't have to be sophisticated. You know, I think about 
you know, what does it take to read a novelist like George Eliot, another novelist who on the surface seems to have no style. And, and Ishiguro sometimes seems to have no style. I think her novels are very broadly accessible if you're at the level where you can read a novel. Whereas a lot of sort of the great modernists, right? And not everything of Ishiguro's is like that. I don't think The Unconsoled is like that. I think The Unconsoled actually is really, uh, and I love it. It's, it's the book that made me fall in love with it, but that's not for all markets. That's a particular taste. But many of the, the great modernists are quite fitting and are determinatively elitist. I think of Ishiguro as being more like Chekhov or Shakespeare or something who, someone who operates on multiple different levels and you can appreciate on multiple different levels. And I hope that is actually the case. I mean, he's certainly sold a lot of books and I hope, you know, some of them are to people who normally read uh, stuff that I would not consider similarly worthy. Yeah, that's a question, you know, can his novels compete with the novels about teenagers or kids that have become the fashion in literature over the last 30 years or so? You can't sell like uh, these sorts of popular kid stories, but that doesn't mean there's no competition. That doesn't mean that it has no pull on young people's souls when once they discover these kinds of concerns with love and friendship that animate both Never Let Me Go and Clara. And of course, partly that means we'll have to wait and see. These will be easier things to figure out 20 years hence than now when they're still fairly fresh. But you would have to approach these things, either start with or quickly develop a sense of this trouble that our principles and our structure don't get along what we have done and do with our ordinary life, which seems fairly real to us, continuously makes us dissatisfied and we have to somehow account for it, somehow square with it. This is not to say we need a revolution or political reform, but we do need psychologically to figure out why are we captivated by very dark fantasies. And also, I think that's hinted to some extent in the art of Ishiguro. He presents deeply disturbing stories but he doesn't insist on rubbing our faces in the ugliness. He doesn't try to make his readers feel that you have to be tough, harsh, bloody-minded even. Far from it. He tries to rescue to what extent it is possible sensibility and sensitivity in his readers, in showing them characters who are caught in a kind of tyranny that we would be shocked to countenance we're shocked to see any connection between it and our way of life. And the connections are plenty. So shocks are inevitable. But he's not trying to make people feel that we have to burn down the system or accuse ourselves. You know, He's not trying to lead people to suicide either. On the contrary, he's trying to show them that there's more to life than what we think we need or what we think we deserve, so to speak. To the extent to which we discover something important in these protagonists, it's, it's hard not to notice that we are like them in an emotional, moral outlook. And on the other hand, they are complete slaves and we think we are free. And so what I'm trying to get at is that it cuts both ways. We're not as free as we think we are. And also, these people are not as inhuman as we think they are. It's verging to on a post-political perspective. That may not be entirely the case. But it's an interesting thing to try to get people to notice at any rate. It's a mugs game saying what art is and what it isn't, but I play it anyway. And I'm quite fond of, I forget whose line this is, but there's a line that the difference between art and pornography is that pornography moves one to action and art moves one to contemplation. And in that sense, I think that Ishiguro's work is emphatically 
art rather than pornographic. I agree with you. I don't think you come away from these books saying, well, gotta, you know, grab the torches and pitchforks or what have you. And, and in fact, I think, and, and nor do I think they're meant to simply depress us. I do think they're intended to move us to contemplation, both in the sense of, of contemplating what our society really is and what humanity really consists of. And I think that's in itself salutary, right? Regardless of whether it leads to any kind of social change. And I don't know anything about Chibro's politics. I like the fact that I can't tell very well from reading his books what his politics are. That strikes me as a virtue. There was something else you said, and I wanted to jump off of about that we are not so free. I think that's right. And I think we can see ourselves on both sides of the divide in each of these books, in a sense. And one of the points, I guess, of the books is the ruling class in Remains of the Day, the predominant people, because the clones provide organs, as far as we can tell, for the entire society. It's not like just a small elite. Although we don't really know. I mean, it never says sort of well, who gets the organs or how many of these clones there are. Um, so I don't know how much of a mass phenomenon it is. But you get the sense that it's a mass phenomenon and not merely an elite phenomenon. And in Clara, it's more of a, of a sort of a mass upper class, the sort of people who, I mean, I live in Brooklyn and the sort of people who live here are the sort of people who might have an artificial friend. It's, it's larger than a mere aristocracy, but it's much smaller than the whole society. The great mass of people in, in that society seem to be sort of increasingly obsolesced. It's not clear where they're winding up, although there, there are intimations that they're sort of living in ethnic enclaves of one sort or another in a more primitive social order outside of the, the mainstream society. But be that as it may, each of them have in common is some sense of trying to transcend the human. The aristocrat in Remains of the Day thinks of himself as, as more of a godlike figure in a sense. We don't ever meet him so directly, but what does it mean to say like, well, all of my needs are taken care of without even having to think about it? I've set things up so that like the world I've created simply lifts me up and supports me. That's that's a sort of like existence in a sense. But he hasn't actually transcended his humanity at all. He's as frail and as faulty as any human being is and his, with catastrophic consequences. The people in the remains of the day, excuse me, in Never Let Me Go, the, the promise is some kind of, you know, well, we, we can conquer death by having this class of people who provide us with organs, but they're going to die anyway. They're extending their life. But what kind of a life are they extending? is a question they seem to have lost sight of. And in Clara and the Sun, similarly, there's sort of relentless competition that defines that society. And the people in the elite in this mass upper class are as ruthlessly subject to its laws as any servant or slave is to the laws propagated by their masters. The mother of the girl who is the artificial friend in the novel has killed her own older daughter in an effort to lift her. One of the ways of remaining relevant in the society, which is to say part of this mass upper class as you do um, genetic engineering on your kids so that they are lifted, their cognitive abilities are raised to the point that they're still useful and can do things that the computers and robots can't do yet. And if you don't get lifted, then you may be part of this lumpen mass of humanity that doesn't have a social role anymore. And so she's taken the bet and said, right, I, I don't want my daughter to be part of the mass. I want her to be an agent in the world. And therefore we need to do the genetic engineering. And, but it's a very risky procedure and it kills her. 
Um, and now she's done it after having killed her older daughter, she's done it to her younger daughter. And she's worried for most of the novel that the younger daughter is going to die as well. That's not exactly a condition of freedom, but it is on some level a condition of aspiration to a certain kind of freedom, right? If she sees the only kind of freedom that one could have as being a member of this stratum that is still active, that is employed, that has power, that has social function. And so it's the aspiration for that freedom that motivates her to risk her children's and take one of her children's lives. It's extraordinary. Yeah, I think that's right. And this is what I was getting at when I was saying that any social arrangement has to answer this question, for the sake of whom is it done? And this will involve the ruling class. What Clara and the remains of the day have this in common that these are upper classes that have debased themselves out of a misguided concern that is not merely selfish. In the case of the aristocrats, you see these people who become appeasers and instead of, you know, out of a desire for peace, they, they lose sight of anything else. But nevertheless, that is not selfishness. They are right. not looking out for themselves. Their misguided idea is tied up with the fact that they are moral. Had they been selfish, they would have enjoyed themselves more and life would have been better for everybody else too. But so also here, as you say, everybody is judged in some implicit way in Clara over against the standard of new powerful machines. It doesn't matter how successful or rich you are, your kids cannot inherit your advantages. All you can do is put them through this risky technology. And again, in a way, it's like the technology will judge who is adequate, not people, not a ruling class. We are all the same over against the machine. And there's a question as to whether we are human anymore. This famous Marxist statement that the machine is the agent of the revolution. It's not ideology, it's technology that gets it done, has more truth than people will acknowledge. And the human-machine competition, as you suggest, leads the ruling class to dehumanize themselves. These people, on the one hand, want the best for their children, and on the other hand, you know, they can't really love those kids. It's a strange comparison of the parent who can't quite put a hand on the child's shoulders, as in the opening chapter of Clara. She's a bit disgusted with her own kid, and partly because the kid is sick, but not simply for that reason. And on the other hand, this parent is desperate that the offspring will be a success, as you're saying, that they still be uh, somehow relevant to a technological post-historical society. They contribute something, they do some work where they are needed. That's one of the points, that a ruling class needs to be needed. I think that's right. I think it's a mistake to some degree to look at this as a peculiarly modern problem. I mean, you know, the ancient you know, Phoenicians in Carthage right, would sacrifice their children, quite literally, uh, passing them through the fire, because they thought it was necessary to maintain viability of their society. That was the way their religious architecture of the universe worked, but it worked for a reason. It wasn't just sort of a bad idea that occurred to them, like that bound the society together, they all made that sacrifice. And I think technology has been subordinating people to it, for as, long as there has been Technology, agricultural societies for most of the history of agricultural societies were far less healthy than nomadic societies. You were a Native American or if you were a uh, Mongol, you know, steppe dweller, you had better prospects in life in general than if you were a stoop laborer in an agricultural society. 
agricultural societies could outbreed the nomadic societies. They could support a larger population, and so they won. And that's the motor of, just as you said, you know, Marx had a point. Technology is the agent of the revolution. Um, the society that's able to displace for most of human history, the society that's been able to displace other human societies because of technological advantages has done so, even if it's made them less happy and in some sense less human see whether that continues to be the motor of human history, but it's tough playing against the past. These novels do attain some of their power by their willingness to identify, so to speak, modernity with pre-modern things, to look at humanity in a way that is unacceptable nowadays. They create societies where characters and circumstances, setups and scenes look immediately recognizable, they're, in some cases, like Never Let Me Go, supposed to be contemporary, or in fact, a generation in the past. But they also suggest that we should look at ourselves as we might look at Carthaginians or Aztecs or indeed Spartans. How do you create a super class of super patriotic warriors? You're going to have to kill a lot of children. There's not going to be a lot of these super warriors, and a bunch of the other ones are just going to have to be murdered. How do you feel about murdering children? Doesn't sound great, does it? All societies have to practice some cruelties. On whom they are practiced and what they amount to is a very important thing to know. And of course, behind it lies this question that somehow is tied up with democracy. Now we do look at the story also from the point of view of the sacrificial victim, not only from the point of view of the one sacrificing. Now we do try to tell the stories also of the people who are on the receiving end of the stick. And so somehow, we do have an awareness that it's not as easy as saying that this is a ruling class and this is the rule, that we are become aware that we're all in it together. This might be a good thing, it might not be a good thing, as indeed in the Clara novel, even the elite are ruthless to themselves because that is the standard by which the machine judges everyone. They cannot afford sentimentality, and that is to say from poor to rich, they're all in the same boat. There is no longer a significant class difference. Being rich or even lifted is, in fact, nothing different to being at the bottom of society. The same neediness, the same uncertainty, the same even a risk to life, which is the shocking idea. Like, never let me go. People are desperate for life. They, will, they just don't want to face the pain, the risk, the danger, and the death. And so they will just treat what is like them, their own clones, as nothing but organs deny that identity, it's literally biological identity, scientifically produced, but it is denied. These other people are not human like us because we don't want to face death. They will have to face death for us. That's one version of things. But this other one is way more elitist because it's people who are actually willing to face death or risk their children's life, their, all their hopes, everything they've ever worked for. Maybe you get your child killed because that's what it takes for him to be one of the few. And so you have these two different visions about when is it okay or when would people risk their lives? And when is mere life absolutely important? There's, in fact, nothing worth risking anything for. And these are different ways of looking at our problem with mortality and the problem of identity. The clone is your identity, and yet it is radically denied because in it, one sees everything that's wrong with oneself. The oddity is that to produce this new case of superior people that might lead to some kind of super future, but for the time being has made everybody radically uncertain, insecure, in risk of their own life from richest to poorest, 
the bum in the street is in a certain sense much less in danger than the children of the super rich. That's a shocking way to say we're all in democratic equality up to our necks. Nobody's safe, you know. Don't fantasize that those people up there live in paradise. It's, you have no idea. And it's not actually that new an idea, you know. Which the Chinese uh, Taoist philosopher, twenty five hundred years ago or whatever it was, has、uh, all these parables about being useless. You know, the useless tree that, like, you know, didn't get cut down because it was no good for making lumber out of, you know, for making you know, houses out of, and that sort of thing. It's a parable that is highly relevant to our society. I wouldn't go so far as to say that Ishiguro is endorsing the notion that all societies must be oppressive in this way; that we all have to create sacrificial victims. But he's looking and saying, "We are human beings, and this is a thing that human beings do. And if we look closely, we do it as well. And we lie to ourselves and say that we're not doing it, but we are. And I think that's." The peculiar—well, I don't know if it's peculiarly modern, but it is very much a contemporary temptation that I see all over the place across any politics you choose to name—is the desire to externalize that kind of cruelty, that kind of horror, and say, like, "Well, you know, no, but our principles wouldn't lead to that, or our ideas wouldn't lead to that." And that I think is more what he's puncturing than anything else. Rather than it's a pretty reactionary perspective to say like, well, there's no alternative, and so you know it's just a question of picking you know who goes on the bottom and and, and how to keep them there. I don't think he's endorsing that, but I also don't think he's endorsing any kind of revolutionary program. I think he's just holding a mirror up to nature, and ultimately all of these societies are extrapolations of the human nature that he sees. And you're right; I hadn't actually thought of the ways in which. They're contrasted with each other, the sort of mass versus elite aspects of it. But I think that's right in terms of of how Never Let Me Go and Lara relate to each other. I think that's quite smart. Thank you. And also, the protagonists have a bent, something I hadn't hinted at before. The clones that we learn about in Never Let Me Go were trained to be artistic. Clara has an unusual gift for noticing things. The first things you notice about her is that, and she's self-conscious about this. That unlike other artificial friends, unlike her artificial friends, so to speak, Rosa, she is curious. She notices things for no reason except that they're there, that they're in place or out of place, and she's curious about them. She wants not merely to be desired and bought as a friend, but she wants just to see the world because it's there. She wants to look out the window and figure out what's out there. In her shop window, she's not merely trying to fit in a role or in a social hierarchy. These are rather different things, but they somehow go together. These kinds of artistic impulses and what、uh, we could call emotional intelligence, in the case of the artificial friends who learn to be companions, they are social animals, you might almost say, or social technology. They pick up on how people behave. They notice how people look at one another, how they do or do not touch one another, how they speak to one another, what their activities are. So it would seem that it's not merely the cruelty that we have outsourced to machines or people we treat like machines or other such things. We've also somehow outsourced the work of noticing these things, and then it runs a range from artistic endeavors down to things like: Do you care about the people in your life? Moment, moment. Do you notice? Do you hang on their words or their gestures and so on and so forth, or not? Do you dwell there or not? That somehow is what's missing in these societies. 
these people to an alarming extent do not realize that they are inhuman because they have lost a certain capacity for introspection. And that seems to come from the fact that they do not see themselves where they are. The clones are rejected. They are a perfect image, a technological image at that, yet they are not accepted as what they obviously are. But so also the artificial friends who are supposed to be the right friend for your privileged kid. People don't quite see themselves in them. They don't wish to do that because it would involve too much of what we would call vulnerability. It's a somewhat sentimental term, but at any rate, we would have to face our neediness. Why do the super rich need a friend for their kids? Why do they need this crutch? It's not just because they don't love their kids or the kids are weird, though. They, they can't deal with being human, exactly. It's because even if they were somewhat better at things, they would still have to face up to this deep, desperate need of another human being to love. What's particularly horrible, I mean, the, the most chilling moment to me and Clara is when we realize that what the mother who purchased her for her daughter, what her objective is, is to train Clara to be, to be her daughter's replacement, to be her clone in some sense. That's what's been going on behind the scenes. It's why she chose this one in particular, because this particular series is especially empathetic and especially high emotional intelligence. Father finds it sort of horrifying to contemplate because he doesn't want to believe that she could truly replace the daughter, that really we all are just machines inside on some level, just very complex machines. And there's nothing more to us, right? He wants to believe that she's sort of something special. But to me, what's really disturbing is the notion that for the mother on some level, the daughter is revealed as something like an object, right? Because even if she successfully pretends to be the daughter, she's not going to have a human life. She's not going to have children. She's not going to have ambitions of her own to create, whether it's art or otherwise, right? She'll be a doll, a sophisticated doll and the mother is hoping that she will succeed at being that. Well, what does that tell you about what the mother's relationship is to her own daughter? If she can imagine being satisfied and consoled by a doll that is a perfect copy, it's horrifying and it's a real window into, into just how far away from human connection the people in this world have gotten. It's not an accident that the character in Never Let Go, you were talking about caring for other people. She's a carer. So she's not just a clone. She's a clone who has taken the job of taking care of other clones who are in the process of making their donations, donations being having their organs harvested, right? And that's a process that can play out over the course of months and years. And if you think about sort of what the job is, the most fundamental aspect of the job is an emotional job. She is trying to keep them going, keep them upbeat, keep them healthy so that they can give more organs that her social function is to keep the machine going that turns these people into organs and kills them. But it requires her to have a great deal of empathy, to not be, and she says early on that a lot of errors are just sort of going through the motions, but she really doesn't mind the job. She be, And the reason is that she has that sensitivity to other human beings, a sensitivity that's put in the service of this sort of horrible machine. Yeah, and so that's part of the question involved is, is there room for people to care for society in the way artists do and for people to care for each other in the way ordinary people are supposed to and are wont to? The clones, the artificial friends are there to show a mirror, but also to point to the problem of making. 
we all love what we make. If Kazuo Ishiguro didn't love his novels, he wouldn't spend so many years writing them. He wouldn't care about any of their particularities or, you know, put his name on them. You love what you make. And of course, that's why parents love their kids. They love what they've made. One need not be crass or cynical to notice that parents prefer their kids first, for example. But gradually, we have turned around to we, the march of history, the march of modernity, the march of technology. What we make is robots. We love what we make because that's what we issue in. And a sort of human way to look at the characters in Never Let Me Go and Clara, to look at what kind of people in what kind of society, what do these people want? They want insurance. Organs cloned for you are insurance because life stuff and you'll need it. Someday something will happen and you'll need a new liver or a new heart. And you know what? If it takes certain cruelties, we all want insurance. And so also in this other case, as specifically in the case you mentioned, a woman who is not only killed one daughter, but is afraid she might be killing the second one. Her notion is not that she should feel guilty, but that she should stop failing at getting what she wants. And so just get a robot instead of a child. Children fail. You have made them. They are your children. But this awful failure of nature, of love, of motherhood, well, you know, technology could fix that in a certain sense. And it's shocking, but it leads to this point that she needs insurance. On what terms are you willing to live life? Well, if at least you have this kind of comfort, this kind of consolation, then this woman can go on with life. So also with the people who take other people's organs and never let me go. These are the terms on which people are willing to go on with life. And that's, you could say, on the human side of things. But then there's this other side that they've all been pushed or to some extent, not determined, but pushed by these new technological possibilities. They didn't, as it were, think it up. It was just there, part of the change of technology that allows you to do new things, including to do new things to people. And this question comes up, maybe we love what we make and what we make are the robots. Maybe in some sense we love technology more than humanity, because after all, in Clara and the Sun, everybody is judged by the standard of technology. Well, speaking for myself as an adoptive parent, I think it's very possible to love what you don't make. And in fact, I think thinking of children in that way as, as something you've made is a very fundamental error. Children are ultimately, they obviously have an inheritance from you if you're their biological parent and in all sorts of other terms, in terms of having grown up in your household, even if you're not their biological parent. But ultimately, your job is not to make them, but to nurture them. A great deal of what nurturance is really about is getting a sense of who they already are and helping them to become who they already are. And that's certainly the way I feel as a parent. And it's also the way I feel as a writer. And it's something that I think is a real strength of Ishiguro's. A great way to kill a work of creative art is to try to control it too much, to be too sure that you know what it is supposed to be. Obviously, you do have to exercise a certain amount of control. You can't be just sort of a blob of shapelessness. But what you're really trying to do, and what is it that Michelangelo said about, about making David, that he saw David in the marble and he carved away all the marble that wasn't David. I think that's the way any real substantial work of creation is done. You see already what it is, not something you created, but something that you perceived. And then the, the craft is revealing that. You do have to exercise a lot of control in the craft, but it's revealing the thing that's at some level already there. And, and I think 
Ishiguro's novels have that sense of having their own life, of not being so controlled that you feel like you're, you're, you're being lectured at. They surprise you for that reason. And I suspect they surprised him when he was creating them. And it's part of what makes them such a joy and makes them so human. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, yeah. I, I hope we will find something else to talk about and do this again. It was a wonderful conversation. I'm very grateful to you. I'm grateful as well, and I would love to do it again. Thank you. All the best. To you too.